Passages, I'm Rachel Powell, and this is Passages Voice. Welcome to the Passages Voice, and Merry Christmas. My name is Josiah McGee, and I'm the Associate Director of Alumni Education here at Passages. It is my privilege today to be joined by Father Matthew Snowden of the St. Nicholas Orthodox Christian Church. Father, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And would you like to perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. It's a joy to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation today. Um, as you said, my name is Father Matthew Snowden. I'm the priest and pastor at St. Nicholas Orthodox Christian Church in Jackson, Tennessee. I've been here at St. Nicholas for just, uh, just under five years, I think it is now. And uh, before that, I served for a number of years as the assistant priest to uh, St. George Cathedral, uh, which is a parish in Wichita, Kansas. And thank you for having me today. Wonderful. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. As we prepare for the, the Christmas season, as it is upon us, I thought it would be wonderful to learn more about the Orthodox Church, as most of our audience is actually not part of the Orthodox Church, but we do have some members of our, our student population that are part of the Orthodox Church, and I thought it would be educational for us to learn more about it. Also, I really wanted to learn more about how the Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas, obviously, because it is the Christmas season. So. For those in our audience who do not identify with the Orthodox Church, I hope this episode is educational and encourages you in the way that you see fit as well to begin celebrating the birth of our Savior as, as we approach the season together. So, Father, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. Uh, the first one I want to start with is if you could perhaps help us define the term Orthodox, what does the term Orthodox Church mean, and what is the nature of, of that uh, church? Sure, great question. Uh, it's definitely one of the questions that I get off, asked most often. I know that when I became Orthodox, even within my own family sometimes, it was, a, it was an issue in the sense that uh, people would say to me, so have you become Orthodox Jewish? And I would have to explain, no, I'm still a Christian, and, and to go through it. Uh, the word itself, Orthodox or Orthodoxy, is really has two meanings to it. It means right belief and right worship because there's this fundamental understanding to historic Christianity that the way that we believe is always to be put into practice, and the practice that we, that we have is primarily one of worship. And then the way that we worship is always going to be a manifestation of and born out of what it is that we believe, what has been our experience of God, of the incarnation of Christ, of salvation in Christ. And, uh, and so the name Orthodox holds that, that as, its, as its content, as its meaning, uh, in order to remind us that as Christians, we are called to right worship and to right belief. Now, the history of the church, I mean, if I was to sort of give an elevator speech about what the Orthodox Church is, I would say that, that it is the uh, ancient, the historic church that is founded upon uh, the incarnation uh, of Christ, the theophany, the revelation that he made of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of the gospel, which is the good news of, of salvation found in Christ, uh, which he gave to the 12 apostles, and which they then passed down through the living experience of being in his presence, and then of mentoring the next generation of Christians, the next generation of Christians. And that has had a continuity all the way from Christ himself to today, without a breakage in its history, without a breakage in its tradition, 
without a breakage in its belief, uh, without a breakage in its administration, without a breakage in its liturgical um, worship and uh, sacramental life, uh, without any kind of breakage whatsoever. And uh, so without any, without any uh, arrogance or pride, but rather humility and thankfulness and gratitude, we would say that when you look at the history of the Orthodox, of what is now called the, his, the Orthodox Church, what you see is, is the manifestation of the one church that Christ established um, in the gospel and with the sending of the Holy Spirit and not Pentecost. Um, when, you, uh, when you look at that history and you see that continuity, that continuity is, is what we are trying to, uh, to tie ourselves into because we are looking for membership in the body of Christ. And there's one body. And so when we become Orthodox, we believe, or, or if we've been born into the Orthodox Church, what we are receiving is, uh, is membership in that body of Christ. Uh, just for a historical footnote, I'll say this. That is that historically, for the first thousand years of church history, there wasn't an Orthodox church or a Roman church or a Protestant church or anything like that. There was just the Christian church, and you only had Christianity and paganism. It wasn't until the Great Schism in 1054 that you began to have these divisions and differentiations within Christianity. Now, there were some other schisms before that, some other uh, breakages where some churches broke off from that main uh, branch of the church, but the, the, the schism between the East and the West was the major schism. And when that happened, it did become necessary to begin to differentiate by names and titles and things like that, uh, who, was, who was part of the ancient Eastern Church and who was, had broken off with Rome and that sort of thing. So with, that, with the advent of that uh, schism, the term orthodox because the church like even if i were to if i were to show you one of my service books it would actually say the orthodox catholic church because catholic has a theological meaning it's not just a title orthodox has a theological meaning it's not just a name so those became names only to differentiate after the schism but we would still say and i'm sure that that Roman Catholics would say on their end as well, that the, the real importance of, of the words that we're using, that we use as a name or as a title, is really about the theological content and what it is that we who claim that as our name are attaching ourselves to, which we would say is the, is the Church of Christ established in, in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts. So that might have been a little longer of a, we might have had to be on a very, in a very large building for that elevator speech, but there you go. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. One thing that I know is a little bit confusing sometimes is the Orthodox Church within itself has many different names. So you have the, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church, for example. Can you explain why there are different regional groupings within the Orthodox Church and why they have names like Greek or Russian Orthodox? Sure. So if you were to spend a little bit of time with my family, my extended family, then you would find that uh, one uncle and his kids and family, they are really into hunting, let's say. And then I've got another one and they are very much into farming particularly. And then I have another one, uh, another part of my family 
uh, that's very much entrepreneurial and has started multiple little businesses and, and that sort of thing. And yet we're all still one family, right? And so we get together and those are distinctions within us, diversity within us that are part of the beauty of our family, but do not divide us. And uh, I would use that sort of as a metaphor for the different ethnic or cultural manifestations of the Orthodox faith. And there's a real significant and almost too obvious reason behind this. And that is, is that our faith is always called to be incarnate. I mean, we are, the, the church is the incarnation of Christ after the incarnation, so to speak. Uh, it is the body of Christ. And that's not just a nice metaphorical, symbolic sort of phrase. It signifies a reality. And if we live that reality, that is a reality of incarnation. So our faith is one that is supposed to be incarnate. Well, you cannot incarnate your faith in any way other than the immediate historical, cultural um, context of your life. So when the church was founded in Greece, there was a Greek incarnation of it. When it was founded in Russia, there was a Russian incarnation, et cetera, et cetera. The Orthodox Church's manifestation and in, in incarnation here in the United States is relatively young. And what we are doing, because we are American, and it's a melting pot, is we are pulling from a lot of those previous traditions in many ways to learn how to be Orthodox as a culture. Um, and of course, we live in a, in a very diverse culture. So we are, as, as culture, we're just one segment of, of the American culture. So we're figuring out. Where, what do we pull from these places, which are our heritage as well, but also what is part of our American heritage that can be um, a, a way in which we manifest and incorporate and, and incarnate our, our faith here in the United States as Orthodox Christians. But those are all uh, distinctions, not divisions. They're all part of the diversity and the beauty of the, of, of the makeup of the people who are in the church. And there's, there's no call to a strict uniformity in many regards uh, within the life of the church. Our, our unity is in Christ. Our unity is not in a cultural identity because that cultural identity, while it is part of us and we, we do manifest our personhood in those things, ultimately, ultimately, if we were called to, that would have to be shed for our identity in Christ himself. So when you look at the Orthodox Church, you see all of these different uh, ethnic or cultural manifestations, what you're seeing is the reality of the incarnation playing out, where there's the possibility for diversity and yet unity at the same time. Uh, but the faith is the same, the creed is the same, the liturgy is the same, the structure of the church here is the same. All of those different things are the same. We're in communion with each other, but when you go to Russia, they might dress a particular way, they might um, have a particular way in which they build their churches, I mean, everybody's familiar with the onion domes, for instance. Well, you won't find an onion dome in Greece, but you won't find the type of dome that you have in Greece in Russia. And there's a real simple explanation for that. If you had a Greek dome in Russia, when it snowed, it would cave in. You have an onion dome because that allows the snow to fall off. That's a very simple illustration of the way in which the manifestation of the faith through its architecture in this instance is also manifested in the particulars of that culture, of that region, of that people. And uh, that's part of how it becomes a living, how it is a living tradition, a living faith, because it, it's, um, it's not adherence to a static um, 
practice or tradition. It's something that is alive, manifesting itself uh, continually in the lives of the people who, who uh, are faithful to it. Did that make any sense? That does, that does. thank you. That helps quite a bit. I wanna go ahead and talk some about then the, the Christmas season as we're approaching it. So within the church at large, there's a season uh, not only of, of Christmas, but also a season of Advent or preparation for Christmas. So can you tell us some about how the Orthodox Church practices or observes the tradition of anticipating Christmas or preparing for it? Sure. Yeah, for, the, for us as Orthodox Christians, we sort of have, within, we do have a liturgical year. And uh, so, you know, Christmas is something that is celebrated pretty universally by Christians of every tradition. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every Christian tradition has, um, you know, well, usually, usually there's Easter and there's Christmas. But there may, not, may or may not, depending on the tradition, be other feast days throughout the year. For us as Orthodox Christians, we have a liturgical calendar for the full year. And it is true that the sort of the two poles to that year would be Easter or what we call Pascha, Passover, uh, and then Christmas. And really, it's, it's, I'll, I'll get to this in a moment too, but it's Christmas, uh, the nativity of Christ, and the theophany or baptism of Christ. Those two things are conjoined together in our liturgical understanding and practice. But those are sort of the two poles, and then everything between those sort of shifts around that. And we have 12 great feasts throughout the year uh, that have to do with the, uh, the life of Christ and with the life of the Virgin Mary. Uh, then we also have feast days every day of the year for various different saints or commemorations of events within the life of the church, depending on the particular day. And, and really, for every day of the year, there's a whole list of the different saints and different events that may be commemorated on a given day. And there's a little bit of a, a system to how those are, you know, there, there's a hierarchy to the commemorations and everything like that. Um, and the whole point of that is simply to have order to it simply for there to be order and unity in the way in which the church worships on a daily basis. Uh, but when it comes to, to Christmas, to the nativity of Christ, I said a moment ago that the two poles for us in the church here are Pascha or Easter and Christmas. And there's a lot that's very similar between the way in which we celebrate those two things. They, they evidence to us some of the most magnificent, beautiful, and life-giving uh, elements of our life in Christ, of our experience of God and of our theology that have to do with the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation, and, and how our salvation is, is, is given to us. So when it comes to both of them, we start the preparation for the feast with a fast. So for both periods, for uh, Pascha, we have Lent, Great Lent, which is a 40-day fast, and for Christmas, we have the Advent fast, as you say, which is also a 40-day fast. It begins on November 15th and goes right up to Christmas Eve. And then we break the fast with the feast itself. I'll come to a couple of details about that if you want here in a moment. But the, the purpose, so, so when, you, when you separate the celebration then, so we've just linked it to Pascha, showing those two things as being connected in terms of the incarnation and its purpose. But then when you separate Christmas from everything else and start to delve down into it, you have these sort of three, three or four stages to it. You have the period of preparation, which is the Advent fast. So from November 15th to the, to the, uh, uh, the Paramount or the Eve to Christmas Eve. You have the feast itself. And the feast itself begins 12, the 12 days of Christmas. 
Um, we don't do all those things that are in the song, the 12 days of Christmas or anything like that, but we have 12 days of celebrating the feast. And that 12 days of celebrating the feast is, is without any fasting of any sort. And it leads us from Christmas to Theophany, which is the feast of the baptism of Christ on January 6th. So then we have that feast and we see these as being connected. I'll show how in just a second, but those two feasts are connected to each other in our minds as Orthodox Christians and in our liturgical practice. But then the next stage after that is we continue to celebrate that with the Theophany season. So you've got a Christmas season and a Theophany season connected to each other. And during that Theophany season, the major celebration is that the priest goes to the homes of all the people in the parish and blesses their houses with Theophany water, with this blessed water from uh, the Feast of Theophany. So I'll just take it part by part, if that's okay with you for just a second here. So with the, sure. with the Nativity Fast, November 15th to Christmas Eve, during that period you are fasting. And we do have a regimen, uh, so to speak, or guidelines, principles by which we fast in the Orthodox Church. And they're consistent throughout the year for the various different fasts that we have. And, uh, and, and it boils down to basically uh, an abstinence, uh, abstinence from uh, meat, uh, dairy products, wine, and, and oil um, in our cooking and in our eating and that sort of thing. Uh, that's the primary principle or guideline for the way that, that the fasting takes place. Now, a distinction, a distinction between the Nativity Fast and the Great Lent Fast is that in Great Lent, we are fasting in repentance, coming up to Holy Week, to the Passion of Christ. With the Nativity Fast, the Advent Fast, we're not, we're not fasting out of penitence. We're fasting out of anticipation and thankfulness, and we're preparing ourselves for it. So preparation means, as we see with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and various other different parables and, and or, or instances in the both the Old and New Testament, where there is a call to the faithful to be watchful, to anticipate, to be attentive. Well, that's what this is all about. So the fasting is relaxed a little bit uh, with regard to that. There's, there are more uh, allowances throughout the fasting period of the Advent fast than there would be during other fasting periods, because we are fasting fasting in anticipation and in thankfulness for the Advent of Christ himself, the incarnation of, of God, of the Son of God. So we go through that period. It, uh, it, it, has, it does have two sections to it, from November 15th to December 20th. The fast is more relaxed, as I just said, but then 20, on the 20th of December to the 24th, uh, during that period, then it is the strict fast from those categories, totally strict fast from those categories I just listed a moment ago, because now we're getting really close and we're really anticipating uh, Christ's advent and we are striving to be the, the five wise, the, the wise virgins. So, uh, so we have that period and then the services begin to sort of take a heightened characteristic to them. On the Sundays leading up to the nativity, we are commemorating uh, the forefathers of Christ and then all of the ancestors of Christ in order to show that the incarnation is not some abrupt and disconnected manifestation or action of God that is disconnected from everything that had been experienced in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, but rather it is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament history and teaching and liturgical practice and prophecy. Um, and so 
do we commemorate on those two Sundays the ancestors of Christ and the and, and the forefathers of Christ? So though there the prof many of the prophecies that have to do with the uh, the nativity of Christ, uh, those are read during those feast days and everything and leading up to it. Uh, the genealogies are read, various different things like that are read to show a connection between it, to show that both the old and the new, so to speak, are all meant to be interpreted through Christ, who is at the center of all things. He is the lens through which we understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, the plans of God in the old, the plans of God now, et cetera, et cetera. So they're showing, we're showing that kind of continuity through the services. But then when we get to the 20th, the services that we do have from that period on, those begin to speak specifically to the, the nativity of Christ himself. And our understanding of the nativity certainly has, it has two elements to it. There is this understanding that it is the, this, this infant, this child uh, that, is, that is being born. Um, what, what's the phrase that, that we have in, 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 in the popular song, uh, meek and mild, I forget exactly now without singing what the specific phrase is, but the meek and mild child or meek and mild Jesus laying there, this idea of, of the humanity of Christ, but also the understanding that it is the son of God that is being manifest, that while it is, while there is a child, a human child laying there in the manger, it is also the eternal divine son of God. Uh, in fact, I, 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 if you will allow me for just a second here, I just had come across this real quick list that I thought kind of showed the, the two elements here uh, that we have in the way in which we sort of the, the show the paradox and everything like that. The, of the unity between the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ and how we celebrate that. Just a couple of quick phrases that come from the services. Uh, he who formed the world now himself takes form as a creature. So you see the paradox there. The creator makes himself to be created. He who holds the whole creation in the hollow of his hand today is born of the virgin. And I could give you a number of other, uh, you know, references to some of the passages that are in our services, but that juxtaposition or the paradox, the unity of two realities is what is being manifest there. Uh, that we have Son of God become a man. And that's obviously, that's, that's the essence of the incarnation, right? But the, the significance for us is that this is something that is full of awe and wonder and beauty and uh, leads us to humility and amazement and thanksgiving because God himself, I mean, there's no way to overstate what that means that God himself become a man. And, the, the, and on the other hand, that a, a human, one with my nature, would be able to be united to that divinity. And all our mythologies are a longing for that kind of unity with the divine. And here we're saying this is truth. That's the Christian faith. That's the good news of the gospel. And everything that Christ then does in his life is a constant manifestation of, no, this is true. You keep trying to deny it. You keep saying that it's not possible. I can't be the son of God. There's no way that divine, the divine could be united to humanity. No, all of this is true. I really am this. And here's the miracles to prove it. Here's the teaching to prove it. Here's my death on the cross, my descent into Hades, my resurrection from the dead. Ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. Uh, you know, all of this. Here's the paraclete. Here's my church, which is my body, so that the incarnation is still a reality for you. 
all of that is what we are anticipating and then celebrating at the Nativity of Christ. And so our, our hymnography is just deeply rich with, with all of that. And it's not that way just so we have beautiful poetry. It is, as I'm, as I'm trying to say here, it's that way in order to bring us to an attentiveness and awareness of the reality of this. And so that's, that's the content of the services at that point. So like the wise virgins, and I'm, I forgive me, I know I'm just yakking on here, um, but like the wise virgins who in the middle of the night are waiting for the bridegroom to come, we come to the conclusion of the fast with the midnight service, waiting in the middle of the night, like the wise virgins, for the coming of the bridegroom. And so our service, mm -hmm. our, 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 our Easter, sorry, our nativity service, like our Pascha or Easter service, is a midnight service. So that, and the timing is such that the idea is that when we partake of the Eucharist, Holy Communion, that that is right at midnight, right at the new day. So right at the new day is when we are partaking of, when we are receiving, when we are seeing Christ in his nativity in this instance. And, uh, and from that point on, it's these 12 days that we spend with the bridegroom, 12 days of no, fa no fasting, 12 days of celebration um, that we spend in celebration of, of the bridegroom's advent. Uh, and so, so that's, that brings us through through the nativity. I'll stop there for a moment. I don't know if you have any need me to clarify anything or anything like that before I make the linkage between that and theophany. No, that definitely is very helpful in terms of understanding the the concept of anticipation and what exactly it is that the Orthodox Church is, is calling attention to. I would be curious before we talk about the theophany, sure. if you could perhaps describe you said that the 12 days of Christmas are really nothing like the song. So maybe you can kind of explain what the, what the 12 days do look like. Are they all the same? Are there different aspects of celebration on different days or what is the, what is the 12 days all about? We do have different celebrations throughout the period of, and primarily what it is, is it's of the individuals who are uh, connected in one way or the other to, uh, to the nativity of Christ. Now, I didn't say this just a second ago, but in these in the service even of the nativity itself, uh, there's there's also then a connection to the coming of the Magi, and and the, the significance of that is directly related to those two Sundays leading up to the nativity, where we celebrate or commemorate the ancestors and the forefathers of Christ. If that was all about connecting Christ's incarnation to everything that has been come really to lay the groundwork, the groundwork to prepare the way for the, nat the nativity of Christ, the incarnation, if that's connected, well, then what about everybody else as well, so to speak? You know, the Magi, they come from a pagan land, and they come to Christ, and they are the first ones essentially to, to worship him. Well, that is celebrated there because the good news of the incarnation is not only for the, uh, the Israelites, but it is for all people through the Israelites, as Paul tells us, through 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 the children of of, of the of Israel. So, uh, so no one is left out of the of the gospel of Christ. There's a place for everybody there. So the 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 celebration of the Magi is there as well. And then we have the celebration of of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. We call we call her the Theotokos. It is a a title of veneration and adoration because what it literally means in the Greek is the birth giver of God. 
because it is the theology mm-hmm. of the church that she did not give birth to a man to whom God the Father then sort of imbued divinity, you know, and sort of like put divinity into him, but rather it was the Son of God that was born to her. And therefore, mm-hmm. to protect that reality and that experience of Christ that we have as Christians, uh, the church has this title for her called, uh, that is Theotokos, birth giver of God. So that when we, we remember her in context of, of, of what her role was, we are not led to any misunderstanding of the nature of the incarnation. Her title safeguards us in that. At any rate, we celebrate, we, we commemorate her during those 12 days of Christmas. We commemorate uh, the foster father of Christ, Joseph the betrothed, uh, during those days as well. And, um, uh, and, and then, of course, there's no fasting during that time period. We do. We, we fast. Throughout the year, we fast every Wednesday and Friday, except during certain periods. So when I say that there's no fasting, it doesn't mean a return to the normal order of things. Like we, we weren't fasting, and then we fasted during the, during the Advent fast, and now we're just back to the normal. We fast every week. On, on at least Wednesdays and Fridays. So when there's a no fast period, like there is for those 12 days, that means that there's no fasting whatsoever. In fact, so to speak, canonically, it's, it's not only not, I mean, it's literally not permitted to those who are being faithful in obedience to the, to, the, to, to the teachings and the practice of the church. You don't fast. To fast when the bridegroom is here is to deny the reality of the bridegroom's presence. So there's a theological understanding to that. Um, uh, and then the the motif, so to speak, for the nativity and for the for the celebration during those twelve days is is the is really the phrase uh, "God is with us" that gets sung in the church time and time again during this period. So, I, in terms of outside of the liturgical practice and the fasting practice, in terms of how people, parishioners, families celebrate those twelve days of, of Christmas, that's a little bit more up to the individuals. Um, I don't really know the origin of that song, where that really comes from, but it is not uncommon for some people to spread out the gift giving through the 12 days of Christmas, um, you know, or, or to do something like that, or to, or to have other celebrations throughout that 12-day period for the, uh, for the Nativity of Christ. Many times families have, uh, you know, so for instance, in our family, during the Advent period, when, when Advent starts, we actually set out a nativity scene uh, for our family, but it, it, it does not have Christ in it. It does not have uh, the angels that, that appear there yet. What we do is we, <laughs> we cut out of, out of um, um, construction paper these little round circles, which we tape down and, and make a path. And, and each one of those little round circles counts for one day during the Advent fast. And so we have this path, and at the beginning of the path, we place Mary and Joseph. And every day of the Advent fast, they get moved one step closer to, uh, to the manger. And then when Christmas arrives, the kids come down, and our Lord is there in the manger. The angels are there. The, um, uh, the shepherds are there, all that sort of thing. So we have these little practices during that preparation period, and, and families oftentimes have very similar sort of things uh, for afterwards, whether it is, as I said, maybe giving some gifts during that time period, um, 
or there may be acts of hospitality that are that are regularly practiced throughout that time period. Depends a little bit on the families. There's not anything okay. specifically um, like offered in that sense with regard to the, by the church. There are little traditions according to the manifestation of the faith in the particular place, culture, family, whatever that somebody is in. What the church specifically offers has to do with the liturgical practice. Sure. I'm curious, maybe if you can provide a, a little more historical context for how these liturgical practices develop, the liturgical calendar. I know it's, it obviously differs from other parts of the church. I know the Roman Catholic Church does have its own liturgical calendar as well, but can you perhaps give some context for how the liturgical calendar, especially for this season within the Orthodox Church, was developed? So first of all, I need to admit that I'm not a historian of the church calendar or anything like that. So there will definitely be some gaps in terms of, of the origin of some specific elements, maybe depending on how deeply you want to dive on that. But, but in general, the first thing that needs to be said is that the, uh, the Israelites had a calendar that was given to them by God. You go back and you look at uh, when the, the establishment of the tabernacle and the giving of the law and the, uh, the establishment of the um, Aaronic priesthood and that sort of thing, and, and you see the very first feast that God himself gives to them as the center of their calendar is Passover. And, uh, and so what the early Christians did was they continued all of that. And just as I said a moment ago that Christ fulfills all of what we see in the Old Testament, well, when you drill that down into terms of the calendar, it's the same there. What the early Christians practiced was a con continuation of these Jewish feasts, but now they were celebrated in the light of Christ. So to put it in a broader context, when you look in Acts, you see that it was the practice of the early Christians to go to the synagogue and to worship. But then they would leave there and they would go to their homes and they would have the agape meal and they would have the Eucharist. So they were taking what was, had been their practice, but they were now putting it in the context of Christ. They still celebrated Passover and all the other feasts, but now they saw Christ as the fulfillment of all of those feasts. There was the Passover in Egypt, but now there was Christ who is our Passover, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, there's a continuity to this idea, this concept of having a church calendar that has always been part of the people of God throughout its entire history. This does not in any way oppose what is very commonly seen in the prophets about God uh, being against men putting man-made calendars above their faithfulness to him. But the thing is, is that having a calendar and being faithful to God are not directly opposite to each other. It is when we have put our faith in the man-made calendar above God that we are finding ourselves outside of our faithfulness to God. But God himself is the one who established the calendar for the Israelites. Christ himself practiced a, um, uh, those, those, those feasts and those fasting periods that they had as well. And the Last Supper took over the, took place and the, and the Passion Week and, and all of that took place at, at Passover. Uh, Christ himself was at uh, a, uh, um, a feast, uh, the celebration of the feast, when he talked about uh, the living water and the life and life abundant that he would desire to give to people. So 
we have this understanding that that we did not create something new when we had these when we have this church calendar we are simply continuing what has always been the practice of the people of god but it is now in the light of christ himself he is the fulfillment of those things we see those things in the light of christ himself um and so with that in mind and then also we we have this understanding that since the church is the body of christ it is the kingdom of god manifesting itself in this world fallen though this world may be then the when we're in the church what we are doing is we are really still with the bridegroom in many ways and and so yes we do fast and stuff like that because because i'm i'm this is i'm i'm using this almost metaphorically here in this context but when you're with the bridegroom you don't fast so in other words when we're with the bridegroom we celebrate the feast of the incarnation on a daily basis and that's what the church calendar is uh, it's always centered on the incarnation every feast is about the incarnation whether it is the nativity or if it is some other feast of our lord if it's a feast about the virgin mary then it is a feast ultimately about the fact that it was through her that the son of god became man if it's a feast about a saint uh like my my um my patron saint saint matthew the evangelist his feast day is uh, on november 16th and uh on november 16th when his feast day is celebrated we're not celebrating the personal piety or perfection or whatnot of the man matthew what we are celebrating is the fact that by virtue of the incarnation a man who was a tax collector who was a sinner was able to participate or as as peter would put it to be a partaker of the divine nature by his membership in the body of christ so when we celebrate these things we are always celebrating the incarnation uh, we venerate the saints we worship god and in our veneration of the saints what we are doing is worshiping god that's the whole that's what happens through that and everything that we're called to do sort of has a maximalist and a and a fullness quality to it we strive for the fullness of the faith for the fullness of the glory of god for the fullness of our participation and being partakers of the divine nature for the fullness of of the joy and the thanksgiving that we have when we are seated at the banquet table of of christ so the church calendar i know that that didn't go into the, like specifics of the history details of how did this particular feast come how did that feast come but that's the orientation that is first first of all essential to understand why there's a calendar at all and that's very helpful thank you i really appreciate that well thank you uh, father matthew for for being with us today and helping us to to think through all these various components of the season from from nativity to to christmas to theophany the the incarnation and the, and the presence of christ i really appreciate your time and your expertise in helping us better understand the orthodox church some history and practices and i hope this has been beneficial for our audience as well to the audience we hope that you have a wonderful christmas season we look forward to hearing more of your stories about how you celebrate, and we hope that you have a wonderful time with your families. Father Matthew, to you as well, Merry Christmas, and thank you again for joining us. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. To learn more about our program, visit PassagesIsrael.org. From Passages, I'm Rachel Powell. Thanks for listening.